Podcast Time Out for Mental Health is where we speak to sports figures, mental health experts, and leadership gurus about their experiences as it relates to mental health issues associated with depression, masculinity, and suicide. These sensitive topics are often swept under the rug, as detailed in my upcoming book, You Don't Have to Swallow Your Gun, a simple book for men about depression, masculinity, and suicide. Getting a handle on a man's masculinity will improve relationships, both personally and in the workplace. Everyone needs some support to ask for help when they feel off or a bit disoriented and foggy and don't know what is really going on with them. If they do not seek help, their behavior can turn dangerous, including alcoholism, drug and pill addiction, anger, fighting, violence, and in some cases, death by suicide. On Time Out for Mental Health, we want to uncover these issues so men and women can live a happy and healthy life, even though they do suffer from mental health issues. Our guest today is Bethany Barton. Bethany is an LA-based author who recently completed her breakout book, Apologies I Never Got. It's a book of dating and relationship horror stories, phrases as apologies you never got from the people who never gave them to you. She's also created a sister work for it, a series of articles entitled Of Martinis and Men. That is about anything and everything in the relationship realm. Finally, Bethany created what she calls the soul sister of apologies, called Written in the Stars, where she utilizes a relationship tarot deck to do weekly readings on relationships. That sounds interesting to me. <laughs> We're honored that Bethany has shared some of her time with us today. How are you today, Bethany? I'm great. How are you? Good. I'm glad you're here. I need all my relationship questions answered. <laughs> well, thank although, you for having me. <laughs> although right, right now I can say today, things are okay with the relationship with my fiance. So that's good. <laughs> yeah. That doesn't mean the day's not over yet though. Right, right. There's always tomorrow too. <laughs> yes. So your story sounds interesting. It sounds that you've had some wild experiences in the dating world, like most of us. And, but you've turned those experiences into books and articles that can help those looking for, for their perfect partner. You're an expert in relationships, dating, divorces, marriages, breakups, sexuality, pretty much anything in the dating realm. So can you tell us a little bit about your story and how you got here today? And feel free to take your time. Yeah, so basically I kind of was running into just these toxic relationships, these patterning over and over, but with different people. And finally, at that point, you kind of have to look at the common denominator, which was me. <laughs> and so <laughs> I kind of just stopped and looked around and tried to figure out what was going on. And it really kind of just hit me that I was holding so many grudges. I was so angry about, you know, past relationships, past family issues, just all kinds of different things that I was kind of just carrying around in my, you know, backpack, so to speak. And it was really beginning to affect, you know, future relationships. And, you know, I do believe we're very magnetic. So I didn't. 
you're, you're freezing a little. What I was out was just this anger. Oh, okay. Am I back? <laughs> yeah, you're back. Is it your uh, wireless connection, it's, it's good? Yeah, it's, that looks good on my end. Um, okay. All right, well, let's keep on rocking and rolling. Oh, now I'm free. Is that better? Now it's better. Well, yeah, you're still freezing. Let's try, huh. I don't know, yeah, it says it's strong connection over here. Okay, well, let's keep trying. Okay, yeah, and I can always use my phone too, I guess, if maybe that seems to help, I don't know. Go ahead. Okay. Um, so yeah, basically, you know, in our lives, we don't always get the apologies. You know, whether that's because people don't realize what they've done, whether they don't care, you know, whatever the case may be. And so we really just have to learn to give them to ourselves. We really have to learn to find the self-healing in them. We have to learn to kind of even find the humor in it. You know, especially in dating and relationships, that realm can get pretty ridiculous. So sometimes finding the humor can really help us move forward. And, you know, holding on to these grudges, these resentments, these apologies we never got, that really just hurts us. It doesn't hurt anyone else. And it is our job. It's our responsibility to heal because we can't just keep going around hurting other people, hurting ourselves and blaming past relationships for that. It's our responsibility. Our healing is our responsibility. And that's really kind of the point I came to with my story and with the book. Good, good. I, you know, to be honest with you, I read something over the weekend that really resonated with me um, by the race car driver, Danica Patrick. And she was talking about triggers that things that her partner did that triggered her into kind of blaming and criticizing. And what she realized is that, you know, she has the same shortcomings or issues that she's dealing with. And she notices those in her partner and thus kind of gets upset about it. And she said she had to work on herself to realize you know, she, she just didn't have to get triggered by that mm -hmm. and, and notice, you know, what her issues are so that it didn't bother her. And I got a lot out of that, you know, maybe, maybe that's my, why my relationship is working today. But anyway, let's, let's dive right into this, Bethany, because you're, you're an expert in this. What, what do you think is the most important aspect of a relationship? It's a good question. Um, and I think we generally hear communication, right? We hear that a lot. <laughs> but what I really think it comes down to is kind of what we, you were just saying, this self-awareness aspect of our triggers, of what our reactions are to certain things and maybe even why. Because communication is amazing and very important. But if you don't know what you're communicating or you don't know what's going on with yourself how can you communicate that to someone else and you know basically it can you know communication can vary between men and women so having a really good center in
and what's going on with yourself and what you're trying to communicate. Okay. Otherwise, you're saying things, but you're not. So I think at the end of the day, it's really just about the steep And through that, we are then are, you can communicate that all day, but you won't find a solution. Yeah, true. Well, for all of us, for the past year, we've been living through a pandemic, which has been challenging for everybody. What do you think that this pandemic, COVID-19, has taught us about dating? I think it's actually taught us a lot. <laughs> I know it's not a very popular opinion, but... Yeah, I think the pandemic made us get real. You know, I think we are used to a lot of surface dating, a lot of toxic dating culture, a lot of, you know, really shallow surface connections. And coming into the pandemic, we couldn't have those anymore. We can't have these shallow conversations or connections. We're being shown this is life, you know, whether it's a global pandemic whether it's someone getting cancer, whether it's someone having, you know, anxiety or mental health issues, you know, we're humans and this is life and this, this is reality. And these surface level connections just aren't going to cut it. And they haven't been cutting it. We see divorce rates through allowing us to get these deeper connections with each other and with Ourselves and being able to go from there, interactions and connections with each other that will hold up over time because we, so I think that's really what it comes down to is that we. Great. Um, well, you're passionate about this, obviously. What what drives you to such a high level of excellence in this area? I think it's really just understanding how much it hurts other people to not have this information, how much it hurt me to not have this information, how I can see friends, family, coworkers going through the same similar cycles because and holding on to this bitterness because they don't have this knowledge or information. And so I think it really drives me to help people understand what I've learned through this because, you know, our connections with each other are our stability. You know, if your marriage is not going well, your life isn't going well. Your friendships aren't going well. Your creativity is not going well. You know, to create this stability in these relationships is how our society can thrive. It's how we as individuals and our society can get to higher levels. Cool. And let me ask you about your style. Is, is there, how would you describe your style that you use in communicating this? Is there a central message that you try to get across? I'm sorry, you cut out there. <laughs> um, I wanted to ask you about your style that you use. Is there a central message that you try to get across or what, what's the most challenging aspect of your experiences? Yeah, I think my style is very realistic, very down to earth, but also very humorous, you know, trying to see that 
while this is practical information, there's also an element of fun and, you know, excitement to it as well. And I think the struggle with it, with the information of that we create our own apologies is people don't always want to accept that. That means they have to change. And yep. We don't like change. We don't like accountability. We don't love those things. So I think you do come across people who say, well, you know, my ex did this. as through that with people to help them understand, you know, this isn't about that other person. This is about us. In, in looking back at all of your experiences, what's been the most gratification, the most gratifying part of your experiences working in this area? I think really the success stories, you know, the people who come back and say, you know, it dawned on me too. And I tried what you said and, you know, it like all these things cleared up. I feel so much better. I'm dating different kinds of people. I'm meeting different kinds of people. You know, I was able to talk to my mom for the first time in five years, you know, whatever it is, it's always going to be my greatest gratification is going to see that it's resonating with people, that it's helpful, that it's, you know, information that is making a difference. That's always going to be my biggest, you know, gratification from that. Great. Great. Well, obviously, whenever we date, our feelings and emotions get deeply affected. So let me ask you, how, how do you deal with that? Do you ever ask for help, help or what's your process? Yeah, I mean, I have a therapist that I see regularly, whether things are going well or whether they're going badly. I like to have that stability of just ongoing working on myself. You know, a lot of people wait until they're in you know, the worst possible way to reach out and get help. But I think, you know, our self-improvement is an ongoing process. So I do have a therapist I use regularly. I also am very into spirituality. So I do a lot of mindfulness, a lot of meditation. I have a lot of resources in that area as well. I think it's just so important to have this ongoing and diverse, you know, collection of resources for our self-development, for our mental health, and just for our general stability. I couldn't say it any better, Bethany. Good job. Okay, so I'm assuming you grew up in the Los Angeles area. No? No, I did not. Where'd you grow up? I actually grew up in a very small town in North Carolina. Really? Yes. What, what town? It's called Brevard. Uh, it's pretty close to Asheville. So uh -huh. just very in the mountains, backwoods of North Carolina. I, I used to live in Virginia Beach, Virginia, so oh, okay. we, we, would, we would go down the coast, and uh, I also, not only the beach, like Duck and, and that, but um, up in the mountains, um, you know, we would, we would go into the mountains as well, and it's, it's just beautiful there, number one, and the people are delightful, so it's a really great place. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, let me ask you about your nuclear family. Let me ask you about your father. How would you characterize your father as a man? Was he tough on you? Did he ever show you love, discuss his emotions and feelings? What do you think about that? Yeah. Um, so, no, my father definitely did not discuss emotions and feelings. 
uh, we were definitely not allowed to have emotions and feelings. He was very, <laughs> yeah, he was, he was very, um, the only emotion really that was in the household was just anger. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, he was struggling a lot with his own and still does with his own mental health and his own childhood and just all these different things. So I think he really just wasn't, you know, able to really have the tools or know or have the resources to do or act differently. And, you know, he was, um, you know, professional in the community. So I think that added to it as well that, you know, seeking help just really wasn't on his radar particularly. And, um, you know, he did receive therapy, but I feel the goal kind of of that therapy was just to keep him stable as opposed to getting to the root issues or expressing emotions. It was really just kind of to keep him at baseline, able to, to function and, you know, do his job and, and be this member of the community. I think that, um, I think you, you understand through your work that yesterday's and today's masculinity norms you know, the John Wayne, Clint Eastwood, egotistical, macho, good old boy network guy. That may have prevented your father from asking for help regarding uh, his feelings and emotions or his mental health for fear of being labeled as not a real man. When, when did that kind of click in for you? How, how did you put two and two together? I mean, it really took... A while, you know, it really took me kind of going through my own experiences and my own therapy and, you know, doing my own work in this area to kind of get a full picture of what was going on. Because, you know, as a child and adolescent and, you know, even young adult, you just have a lot of anger for that experience. You just have a lot of blame and you kind of are just like, well, he could have done this or he could have done that. And then you kind of get perspective and back away and see that you know, his options were really limited. You know, he was taught that he wasn't allowed to have emotions and feelings. So he taught us the same thing. You know, anger was the only acceptable emotion, uh, which he had in spades. So that was kind of, you know, what we were taught as well. And seeing now from the perspective I do, you know, being in a small town in North Carolina, being with this very fixed idea of masculinity, you know, his role he thought was to provide financially. And that was the only reason he did go to therapy was because he couldn't do that otherwise. So I can definitely see now that in his mind, he was doing the right thing, the masculine thing. He was providing really well for us financially. And, you know, the other stuff just isn't always as valued, you know, emotionally being there for your children as a father is not always valued in our society. True. Um, in my in my work, in my book, in my podcasts, in my speeches, I often talk about toxic masculinity, but I also talk about what's healthy masculinity. And so I want to share a little bit about that with you and see what you think. Um, <clears throat> to me, it's a, a three-dimensional man, a guy that has three different types of qualities that make him a a masculine man in a healthy way. Number one, we know that men 
are strong and they have to be strong and lifting heavy objects, taking a piano down the stairs, refrigerators, etc. But to me, that strength also means about knowing that a man has to have discussions with somebody in his family or at his business that he knows are going to be tough, uh, difficult for the other person to take in the communication. But he knows it's necessary that that talk does happen. So that's one side that, that you know, I, I, I believe that a man has to create an environment for a woman to contribute, be part of, to be heard. And, and the man's job is to, you know, listen and empathize without judgment or fixing. But, you know, allow that woman the space to be who she is and not have a problem with it and, and accept that. Um, and that, that comes up a lot in the workplace because, you know, the vice president of the company hires his buddy, part of the good old boy network, not that he is the, the best candidate to be a supervisor, but the vice president knows he can trust him. And, you know, this guy is part of the toxic masculinity team that's very competitive. And, you know, a lady who might get talked over during a meeting approaches her supervisor after the meeting and says, hey, you know, I've, I've got this great idea that I want to contribute. And she tells the guy and he says, yeah, but you're a woman. And, you know, there's an immediate disconnect and she has three choices, either to go back and sit in her chair and just doodle on her notebook or look for another job that has a, a healthier environment that she can thrive in. Or if she goes to HR, she doesn't know whether she's going to get help or she's going to be uh, fired. So it puts, it puts not only the woman in a tough space, but the organization loses 20, 30% of its productivity and profitability because they're not, they're not getting the full benefit of their team. The other two dimensions of, of a healthy masculinity is something that I call um, curly, like from the Three Stooges, that men need to have a sense of humor and they shouldn't have to take life so seriously. And, you know, they got to lighten up a little. It, it's everything's not, you know, life and death. So, that's an important part. And the third part is spirituality, that a man needs to be connected somehow, however he wants to define that, doesn't matter, just so that he grounds himself and checks in and has that self-awareness um, as part of who he is, his repertoire. And if a man has all three of those dimensions, I think that he practices healthy masculinity. So it's tough. And, and that's why I'm doing this work is because 
took me a long time to realize I needed to take my mask off, so, so to speak, and and uh, ask for help and gain more self-awareness. And, uh, you know, it, it, I'm now in touch with my true authentic self much more. And, you know, I'm really passionate about what I'm doing now and, and feel great about it. So let me ask you, you talk about what the toxic dating culture is and what does that, what does that mean? Yeah, so I think we touched on it a little bit when we were talking about the pandemic. Um, But yeah, it basically has the motto of who cares least wins. That's the (laughs) motto of toxic dating culture. (laughs) You know, it's, you know, pretending you don't have feelings for this other person, but yet somehow still dating them. Um, It's basically putting on, like you said, these masks and having these very surface level connections and not being truthful or authentic about what you want or need out of the relationship. And it just doesn't prepare us for anything. It doesn't prepare us for marriage because that's not how marriage works. It doesn't prepare us for life because that's not how life works. So it's just really creating this system of, you know, especially for women, not getting our needs met. You know, we're told don't appear anxious, don't appear needy, don't ask for too much right away, don't sleep with them on the first date. I mean, we just have so many rules, you know, put upon us to almost, I mean, it's almost like we're tricking this guy into being with us, you know, and that's just not what it's about. And that's not good. You know, a lot of with the toxic masculinity as well, you know, what's not good for women is not good for men either. If you're hurting someone else, that's not good for you. And it may seem like they're winning or they're getting, you know, what they want out of the situation, but they're not. No one's winning in this game. (laughs) No one wins in toxic dating. No one wins in toxic masculinity. So I feel like that's kind of where it all ties in is just, you know, we can't keep pretending we don't have needs or feelings or emotions, you know, men and women, because we do. And that's part of being open and vulnerable and honest. Great. Well, we touched on spirituality. Where, what role does that spirituality play in, in the dating game? I think it's huge. I think it's a huge aspect of it for, you know, a couple of reasons. But, you know, like we said about the authenticity and your self-awareness and understanding triggers, you know, that's all things that spirituality really touches on and helps you ground through so that you can be a good partner and you can be a good spouse and you can be there in that way, you know, and it also helps you find your purpose because that's another part of being a good partner is not making your purpose be that other person because that's unfulfilling. No other person can fulfill us completely in that same way. We need to have our own sense of direction, our own sense of grounding, and that's where we can bring in other people and have this really good connection. And I think you know, with the spirituality too, it really teaches the aspects of masculine and feminine as opposed to these fixed entities or roles. And it helps you really open yourself up to different possibilities and concepts of that. Very good. I like that. Okay. You mentioned love languages in a relationship. I'm clueless. Tell me what that is. Great. So the love languages are, um, there's five of them. And so they talk about how you give and receive love. 
What makes you feel loved? What shows you that you're loved? And then how do you show another person that? So they talk about, um, you know, there's physical touch is one, words of affirmation, quality time, acts of service, and gift giving. And each of those can kind of have a little bit of a spectrum, you know, like for example, quality time, that could mean amount of time, or that could mean what you do in the time that you're together. Um, so there is kind of a spectrum of them, but it's just kind of about, you know, compatibility. If one person is speaking this love language and the other person doesn't receive that way, then you've got a problem. Then you've got people miscommunicating and, you know, they never do this, this, and this. And the other person's saying, but I do this, this, and this. And, you know, they're just not reaching each other basically on the right kind of frequency. They're just kind of tuned out a little bit. That's true. That's true. And then you talk about attachment theory. And so why do we need to know about what attachment theory is? So attachment theory, it's, it goes really deep into the, you know, biological, but basically it talks about, you know, we as humans have this biological need to have an attachment figure. So when we're born, it's a parent or caregiver. And then as we get older, it usually becomes a partner, a spouse, someone like that. So it talks about the bond that we create when we're young with our parents that we then carry that style with us into adulthood. So how that relates to masculinity is there are four total, but there's really three main types. Um, so there's anxious, avoidant, and secure. So a lot of men fall into the avoidant, which is where <laughs> they don't, you know, they want kind of arm's distance. Uh, it, it's very triggering to them to feel, you know, suffocated which is unfortunate because a lot of the women fall into the anxious category. So they're doing that when they're triggered and you have this kind of cycle, but a lot of what can trigger the man to be avoidant attachment style to begin with, how that's formed basically is they learn that their caregivers are not going to provide for them, you know, emotionally, physically, whatever the case may be. So they learn to avoid that. They're just understanding, well, they're not going to meet my needs. So I'm just going to go do my own thing, basically. And so, you know, they talk a lot about if a little boy is crying and goes up to his mom or dad and they say, stop, stop doing that. You're fine. It's fine. Just go. Then that little boy is not being physically cared for or emotionally cared for. And so he learns to stop going to people for that response. Whereas, you know, a little girl, it might be a different reaction from mom and dad. So you've got a really a culture that really almost encourages this avoidant attachment style in one gender and then you know the other gender generally falls into the other category because of how they're responded to and so you have people just triggering each other left and right and not understanding you know they're not communicating why they're being triggered or how and so it really just plays into a lot of the relationships that we see, um, especially in dating culture. But yeah, and I think as we begin to understand it more and see it more, we can kind of work within it to, you know, find the secure attachments who maybe have worked on themselves or, or gotten to a point where they're not going to be so triggered by another partner. That's really good stuff. I really like that. I really like that. Well, 
you know, all of this stuff, relationships, dating, it brings up a lot of feelings, a lot of emotions. And I'm wondering if uh, you've, during this time when you were going through all of these experiences, that if you felt a depression during any traumatic time, and how did you deal with it? Did you keep it to yourself? Did you look for help as opposed to men who try and sweep it under the rug? Yeah, I think definitely, you know, in my early adulthood, I had a lot of anxiety, a lot of depression, and I just didn't know what it was because even though my father had that, we didn't know that's, I didn't know that's what it was or that's what it looked like. So, and we didn't talk about it. So I struggled with that for years until I finally you know, got into therapy and then spirituality as well was just a huge part and still is of how I stay grounded. And, um, you know, I'm able to kind of see where some of these things originated from and where my anxiety was being triggered, why my depression was present and being able to really work through those things. But I think it's important too, to have that variety because I think if it had just been talk therapy, I don't think I would be where I am. I think it really took finding, you know, whatever it is for whoever, but for me, it's meditation, it's yoga, it's some of the deeper self-awareness practices that really brought me out of the dark into a good place. That's right. That's what I find. Um, Well, let's talk about breakups, you know, there are successful relationships. They're kind of challenging to make long-term relationships work. Thus, sometimes there's a breakup. And when there's a gnarly breakup, you say there's a few ways to survive that. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, I mean, I think the most integral part of that is to acknowledge it as a loss. You know, especially for men, they're taught, just move on. It's fine. You're done. You know, (laughs) I think women are a little bit better about, you know, crying it out um, and then maybe reaching out to friends and and doing that. But, But I think really for men and women, too, it's just important to be in it, just sit in it, feel it, own that it is a person and a relationship and a connection and attachment that you've lost. And, you know, I had a friend going through one and she was trying all these other things and that it wasn't working. And I said, well, you know, have you thought about just being in that? And she said, well, if I do that, I feel like I'll just cry for three days. And I said, well, then cry for three days. <laughs> you know, we're taught not to do that, but you know, and so she did, she took a long weekend, she cried for three days and she felt better. She got up and was able to get her life back together. But that was, you know, two months of her trying all these other things to keep that from happening. So I think for men and women, it is just very important to, you know, whatever it is, cry it out, you know, be by yourself for a while and just allow that grief to process. And then, you know, do the best you can to start putting your life back together as far as, you know, finding the things that do make you feel good. And that's a lot of where the self-awareness comes in. The stronger you are in yourself, the less a breakup is going to feel like your world is gone. I mean, it's always going to hurt, right? Like always going to hurt. But as far as you know, your own coping skills, 
you know, okay, great. Like I'm going to go to the gym. I'm going to go to the meditation. I'm going to, you know, maybe get out of town for a couple of days. This is how I process. This is how I heal. So all of these things kind of help you put that into perspective of this was a relationship. This wasn't me. This isn't who I am. This isn't anything that I can lose. Isn't who I truly am. So it's kind of just learning to a process the grief and then b find your center again. And if you don't have a center and you don't know where it is, now's the time to find it because <laughs> it's a great time to focus on yourself. I like that. Well, personally, I can say that, yeah, I mean, I feel the pain for sure. And what I try and do is get first get to acceptance that, okay, I've got to accept the situation I'm in. And then I try and look for the silver lining. Like, what is it that I can learn from that experience and take from that experience that I can do a better job moving forward? Absolutely. And, and I, you know, one thing that I went through in a previous marriage was that, um, you know, I wasn't making my wife my number one priority. And one day we're in the kitchen and she says, you know, I can't wait for the day that you make me your number one priority. And that just hit me like a ton of bricks and has stayed with me. Mm -hmm. And thus, in my current relationship, this woman's my number one priority. And, you know, look, I've lived, I've lived in a lot of places. I've done a lot of things. It doesn't matter to me where we live. You know, she's going to want to live where she wants to live anyway. Mm -hmm. And after a year or two in one place, she'll want to go someplace else. And that's okay. I don't care. It doesn't matter. I just want to be with her, you know. So I, I try not to get into differences a lot. And I try to let her know that she's, she's the special one. So... So far, so good. <laughs> all right, so wrapping up, tell us what you've learned from all your experiences so far. Is there one thing that you can cite that has been really uh, a great learning item that you can share with us? Yeah, I mean, there's so many, but I really think for me, it's the simplest one was just being authentic to who I am and that wound space, those angers, those frustrations, that's not who I am. That's not me. And, you know, putting on a mask for, you know, toxic dating or pretending I don't feel this way, you know, that's not who I am either. And I really feel like for me, things started getting better very quickly when I was really authentic with who I am and what I want and let go of all the things that aren't me. And I just was so much happier as a person because I was fulfilled in my life. I had my purpose and I wasn't carrying around all these things that were dragging me down or making me, you know, have harmful behavior or, you know, separating me from people because 
these grudges do separate you from new relationships and new people. So, I mean, I know it's very simple and kind of cliche, but it's just the best advice to just be authentic and just be yourself and be who you are. And if you're not sure who that is because of all these things, it's great to just start. Yeah. And that's a great place to start is just putting it down. Okay. Last question. I'd like to hear about how you describe masculinity. I describe it as, you know, kind of that guiding force, almost that father figure of guidance. It's kind of the action part of, you know, manifestation almost. It's the yin and yang balance. You know, it's kind of the part that includes these masculine qualities and not to the extreme that we've placed them. I think that they're not inherently bad qualities, right? We need the action oriented pieces. We need the logic. We need, you know, the go out and get it piece, but we don't need just that, you know, we need the receptive, we need the understanding and the intuition and, you know, we need that balance. So for me, masculinity is falling back into that balance, taking these traits, taking this almost, you know, caring father figure component and putting that where it belongs, right there next to the feminine so they can interact in a more balanced and effective manner. Great. Well, as everybody can see, Bethany's story is quite remarkable. You've demonstrated a lot of courage and bravery. And, uh, you know, you're becoming a real role model for women today. We're honored to have you with us today on the podcast. Do you have any final thoughts you'd like to share? No, uh, just letting everyone know that you can find my work and my book and all of that at um, bethanynicole.com. So that's B-E-T-H-A-N-Y-N-I-C-O-L-E.com. Great. Well, very good. I look forward to continuing our dialogue moving forward so I can continue to learn from you so that I can help others even more. Listeners, please look out for our podcast, Time Out for Mental Health, wherever you get your podcasts, including the Mental Health News Radio Network and HealthyLife.net. And keep your eyes out for my upcoming book, You Don't Have to Swallow Your Gun, a book about relationships, depression, suicide, and how toxic masculinity affects relationships between men and women. And feel free to contact me for speaking engagements through my website, timcrass.com. And don't forget, have fun, everybody.